Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. Uh, John's been here before, and he pastors a church called Antioch Church in Simi Valley. Uh, he started in, where did you start? Ventura? No. He started in Ventura, and then he planted a church in Ventura, a four-square church that still remains today, which is good. Uh, you went up to Roseburg, is that right? Newburg. Roseburg, Newburg. doesn't matter. You don't know where it is anyway, do you? In Oregon. And uh, pastor there did a great job and came to a church that needed some healing and that actually needed to relocate. And so they relocated. They went from Easy Street to Runway Street. And this guy has done a great job leading that church. He's one of the finest four-square leaders we have, guys. And if I wasn't pastoring here, I'd make a great usher in his church. This is, this is the guy I would sit under. And I don't say that lightly, but there's not a lot of leaders I'd say, I'd let you lead me. But John is one of them. So without rambling anymore, uh, would you give a good country honky-tonk welcome <laughs> Pastor John Amstutz. Come on, guys. Give it up. Thanks, Thank you, man. Love you. Okay. So am I supposed to stand way out here? Is that one more in the middle? Because you guys are pretty spread out, huh? All right. That'll work. So, hey, thank you for having me back. I was just thinking, it's been, I think it was last March I was here. And uh, it's good to be back in the armpit of the county, I guess I found out through that song this morning. So that's okay. I come from a place that's known as Slimy Valley. That's what people call Simi Valley. And I spoke to my doctor who's in Ventura. He calls it Slimy Valley, and he asked me why I live there. I said, because God told me to. So, but uh, hey, I, this is a first for me. I've never, in all of my years of pastoring, I've never followed a bluegrass band. So I don't know if, what that's going to do to me and what that's going to do to us this morning, but we'll find out. But um, um, Pastor Bernie, thank you so much. Um, uh, you guys who know Bernie know he is just an amazing person who loves people. And uh, Kim and I were just talking, my wife Kim, about, about you, that uh, before we went up to Oregon, I remember the, the first time I ever met you, I have to say, so when, when a lot of times when you are on, on staff at a church, uh, senior leaders, when you're at conferences, tend to talk more to senior leaders, and staff members are kind of left behind. Now, Pastor Bernie doesn't function that way. We had a conference at the church at Horizon, and all the other senior leaders were talking to each other. And this really friendly guy comes over to me and introduces himself and starts asking me questions about my life and about what's going on in my life. And I was blown away. It was, and Bernie, it was you. And you were the only senior leader at that conference that actually even looked at me. And I remember going home and telling Kim, there's a guy who actually really thinks I'm something, even though I'm not a senior pastor yet. And I remember that. And that's been true of all, all through ministry that Bernie, Bernie and I have kept in contact. And his encouragement through the years has been just, just amazing. So thank you for your, your friendship and your encouragement through the years. So, so thank you again for having me, me back. And this morning, we're, we're going to have two sessions together. And there's two things I want to jump into. But before we, we get to those, um, I just want to start with, if, if you were here Oh, it was 11 months ago now, uh, it was in March last year, um, I talked about, we had three sessions together, and I talked about getting a hold of an understanding of how do we define manhood, and how do we have a lens that we can look at our lives through to say, okay, am I, am I the man that I'm supposed to be? Does anybody recall that 11 months ago, anybody who's here? Okay, I'm going to really put, put your memory to the test. Does anybody remember the three things that we talked about? And if you don't know, you can cheat right now because it's on your notes. 
but I wanted to just revisit it for a moment because it's something that I have used in the last probably 15 years of my life to assess where I am as a man trying to follow Jesus in my life. But let me just touch on those three things. We talked about uh, rejecting passivity, accepting responsibility, and living courageously. Now, I'm not going to talk in depth about those this morning, but I wanted to revisit those because those three elements, at one time or another in my life, I revisit them and I ask the question, am I rejecting passivity? Which, which by the way, that is the greatest sin of, of, of men, is that instead of, instead of doing the wrong thing or the right thing, usually you know what we end up doing? Nothing. And that's the problem. Uh, why did Eve eat the fruit? I'll tell you, because Adam was doing Nothing. <laughs> And he should have been doing something. And the, the second thing is that there's this responsibility that we have as men that we have to accept, that God's given us responsibility in our life. And then the, that third thing is, is living courageously means we're stepping out into the places God calls us to. And so this morning, what I want to talk about is, is there, there's, a, there's something that happens in all of us that causes us to disengage. It causes us to be passive. It causes us to pull back. And so we, either by our own doing, our own decision, we disengage from the game. We, we pull out of life. We stop moving forward. And we're going to talk about two things this morning that really have a lot to do with that. But I want to use that, that, that lens, again, to start with about we're looking at these three things, kind of driving our understanding of manhood, because I realized in my life a number of years ago that, that those three things kind of became something I hung on to. And then as my son, who now is 21 and gets married in May, which is crazy, um, my commitment to my son is to give him two things in life. One is a definition of manhood, but secondly, more important than that, is to get him to Jesus. And my, my son and my daughter know that, that my, my primary responsibility in life is to get them to Jesus. If I get them to Jesus, I've done my job, because now they're going to have a relationship with him. And so my son is following Jesus. He's actually getting married to our, our, uh, our youth and children's pastor, and she's been a part of our church for, for a few years. And and uh, and I've so far, I can I can... Almost check both his boxes. He's following Jesus, and with the manhood definition, he's getting closer every day. But he knows those, and I'll go back to him and say, hey, Jordan, remember? And he's like, I know, Dad, I know. And it goes, number three, yeah, live courageously. I know I'm not living courageously, right? But it, it gives him something as he leaves my house in, in four months to say, okay, now I know what it means to be a man. I know how, how God's, what God calls, called me to do. But two things today I want to talk about, because these are the two things in all of my pastoral ministry when I've worked with guys, these are the two issues that seem to be the biggest struggle. If we can get these two things down, we can, we can actually become the, the man that God's called us to be. The first one is this, is how we get sidelined by temptation. That is, a, that is something that, that can, pulls us right out of the game, pulls us back from what God's doing, is when we're tempted, because we're all tempted, but how we deal with temptation determines a lot of what will happen in our life. And then the second thing we'll talk about in the second session is really to talk about what's the foundation that we're actually building our life on? What does that look like? Because if we can learn how to navigate temptation and then we can make sure that our foundation is built properly, then a lot of the stuff that we deal with all the time that sidelines us from what God's doing in our life or keeps us from advancing in what God wants to do in the future, those things get taken care of. They They get addressed if we're handling temptation properly and we're built on the right foundation. So the first session today, I want to talk about the concept of temptation and how that becomes an issue for us. Um, and I want to start by telling you a, a bit of a story, and I, I, I can do this with permission from this person, a very close friend of mine. It was about five years ago. Uh, I was at a, at a wedding, and uh, the wedding was just finishing up, and my phone rang, and, and uh, so it was our, uh, currently at the time, it was our worship leader, and so I picked up the phone, and 
And on the other end, I, I hear tears, I hear sobbing. And uh, he says, hey, he says, hey, Pastor John, he said, I, I just wanted you to know I, I've been struggling uh, for a long time in the area, and my wife found out tonight, and, uh, and so I, I, I need to figure out what to do next. I said, well, what's the challenge you've been having? He said, I've been addicted to pornography. And she saw some stuff on my phone, and, and so I said, okay. I said, and so this is Saturday night at about 9 o'clock, and, you know, ser- next service starts at 9 o'clock the next morning. So we had to rearrange some things, and so he, he wasn't able to lead the next morning. And, and so I, I kind of put it at, on the back burner saying, okay, when we're done with the services on Sunday morning, I'm going to try to figure out how to address what's going on in his life. And so I was, had actually had a guest speaker that day, and I was sitting in the front row um, and listening to the guest speaker. My wife was sitting with some other folks a few rows back in a section, and all of a sudden I get a text message from her in the middle of the message, and this is, she tells me that she said, uh, yeah, he said, she was referring to, to our worship leader, she said, he, he's not just been looking at porn, he's had an affair. This is right as, as, the, as the guest speaker speaking up in front. I'm like, oh, that's great news. And she said, in fact, his wife just found out and I need to go to the house because she literally is physically going after him right now, and the kids are refereeing this battle. I said, go, go, go save his life. She's going to kill him. And so she went and, and come to find out it wasn't just looking at pornography. It wasn't just an affair. He had been a full-blown sex addict for 10 years, and nobody knew. He was the only person who knew. He had kept it a secret lifestyle for years. And so I share that to start with because... What he walked through is at one point in his life, he didn't know how to navigate temptation. He did not have the tools to know how to overcome something that became a draw for him. And every moment that he caved in and every moment that he gave into that temptation, it became a stronger point of bondage in his life to the point where it literally it, it destroyed his life in that moment. I'll share a little bit more about his journey because that's not the end of his story, just like all of us when we fail. It's never the end with Jesus. There's always an opportunity for his redemptive work in our lives. And so, so with that understanding this morning, what, I, what I'd like to do is, is us to understand this amazing fact. We have the best example of how to navigate temptation. And you post, most of you probably know who this guy is. His name is Jesus. And he shows us more accurately and more helpfully with resources of how do we face things that tempt us, that draw us away from God, that try to trip us up, that actually disengage us from the game of life that God's wanting us to, to live in. Listen to these passages of Scripture. I believe they're on, on, on your handout. Talking about Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, it says this of Jesus. It says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Anybody ever thought, well, it's not fair. Jesus was God. Did you know Jesus was fully God and fully man, which means he understands what it is to be a man, and he suffered what we do. We suffer in temptation. Jesus suffered too, but he was able to do it in a different way than we did, because listen to what it says in Hebrews 4, verse 15. It says, for we know that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, it's talking of Jesus, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Here's the difference between us and Jesus, yet without sin. So here's somebody who's demonstrated for us, there is a way to face temptation and not have it destroy your life. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There is hope, there is a way. 
We don't have to live lives that are constantly destroyed by our, our vices and our temptations that draw us away from God. And as I mentioned, Jesus is the ultimate example of what this looks like in our lives. And there's three things we'll go through this morning of how Jesus highlights for us in Matthew chapter 4, this temptation he has and this encounter he has with the devil. And the three things we'll talk about is these are the temptations that you and I as men, these, I think these are true for all people, but I think for men particularly, these are the things, the kind of the categories that we get drawn away in. There's three things, self-provision, self-promotion, and self-interest. I think those are the core issues that we all deal with when it comes to temptation. Now, the temptations take on different forms and different faces, but at the core, they fall into those categories. And I want us to look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, because this is where Jesus is tempted, just like us, but his response gives us a pathway forward on how we navigate the temptation in our life. So if you look at verses 1 through 4, this is the temptation number 1. So let me read verse 1 through 4 of Matthew chapter 4. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Let me just pause for a moment. That is the biggest understatement you'll ever hear in the Bible. Anybody fasted for 40 days and 40 nights? I think the longest I fasted is like four days. And at the end of four days, I thought I was going to die. Can you imagine 40 days and 40 nights? And then he was hungry, yet just slightly. Verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the devil comes to Jesus in this, this state of hunger, and he tempts Jesus to do what? To provide for himself. Now, this is really important because one of the things that you and I know about temptation is we are never tempted in our moments of strength. We are always tempted in our moments of weakness. How many know that's true? You're like, it's never a perfect moment for temptation. It's like, I wake up, and I really feel strong today. Bring it on. No, that's usually not what it is. It's it's when life is difficult, when we're overwhelmed, and obviously, so in this, in this context, the enemy hits Jesus right where he's at in his humanity. He knows he's hungry, and he knows his ability, too, and so he tempts us and said, why don't you just provide for yourself? Why don't you just make some food for yourself so you can satisfy your 40 days of, of not eating, and you can, you can eat again, and you won't be hungry anymore, and so he tempts Jesus. Now, we know that Jesus is fully God and fully man, but I'm convinced in this context, this is fully Jesus' humanity. He's being tempted as a human being. And so when the devil comes to him, he tempts, he tempts him at this very weak moment, and he tempts him with self-provision. What is self-provision? Self-provision is this. It's looking to self to provide instead of trusting God. And you and I as men, this is, we get this all the time. Why? Because we're supposed to be the provider. We're supposed to be the protector. We're supposed to be the one that takes care of everything. Why? Because you're, if you don't, then you're not a man. Now, there's elements to who we are as men that that's part of our, our role and responsibility, but ultimately, you and I don't provide anything. God provides everything. And if, if those of you haven't experienced that because you've tried and tried and tried, you should, you should learn to find your trust in God and see what God does, because I've realized in my life, God is a better provider than I am. He does something that I can't do because he's God. But what is the answer to this temptation? So Jesus states that provision doesn't come from uh, the commander of the uh, force of man, but what comes from the mouth of God. Provision doesn't come from us. We're simply the conduit of what God is doing through us. Has anybody ever met you, really, you, if you're married, you, maybe you're single, but, but you hit a moment, I know for me this hit me when I got married, 
the weight of provision like just feels like it's overwhelming. Anybody ever want to admit, like, I'm responsible for this? So I'll tell you the first time it hit me. I didn't tell my wife this for a number of years. But I remember the first time this hit me where I realized, okay, I'm getting married and I'm now responsible to take care of this woman and to provide for what she needs. Now, you'd think in like the process of being engaged and getting married, that would have hit me somewhere along the line. But it, it never did. In fact, uh, we went through premarital counseling and we never talked about you know, that responsibility. We went through the wedding day. We went through the wedding night. And I remember after our first night together, we got up. We were, we were staying in a hotel down by LAX. We we're going to go to Hawaii, which was a gift from her parents. And so we get on the plane and we're sitting there and we're just getting ready to taxi and it just hit me. We're by ourselves. It's just me and her. Her parents aren't here. My parents aren't here. And I felt this overwhelming sense of anxiety. And I'll tell you, this is exactly what I thought. Oh, crap. I'm responsible for her. And it was like in that moment, sitting in that, that plane seat, it's like my life in the future just flashed before me. Like, I'm responsible for her. First off, I have to get her to Hawaii and back safely. And then I have to earn enough money in my life to make sure that all of the needs that she has are met. And I remember just, I got really quiet. And at the moment, she could tell I was quiet, but I was not going to tell her, like, what I was thinking, because that wouldn't have been really good on our first day of marriage. And so I just kind of stuffed that, and I just remembered thinking, I don't know if I can do this. And I lived with a, a, a huge sense of inadequacy for a long time, thinking that the responsibility I had taken on was only, ultimately, it was going to be God's, but I was still living in this reality that I have to provide everything for her. And God was trying to help me to realize, no, you don't have to provide everything for her. You have to learn to trust me, and I'll provide everything for both of you. In fact, I've come back to this passage so many times, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 31. Listen to what Jesus says about provision, because I think he nails us. He, he, he's, he's reading our mail on this one. I think he gets us really well. Verse 25 says this. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Anybody ever been anxious about your life? Raise your hand. Otherwise, you're not human. We're all anxious. Then he goes on. He says, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or about what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What's Jesus talking about? The basic needs of life. That we, we carry on this huge responsibility. But he says in verse 26, he says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Just pause for a moment. This is a ridiculous example because I want you just to think about this. When was the last time you saw a bird that was completely stressed out about its next meal? You will You never. It, why? Because birds somehow just know that there's going to be food wherever they go. They never stress out about it. You never see them flying back and forth and just thinking, oh my gosh, where's the bird seed coming from? Because we all know they'll just fly to McDonald's and eat the fries that are left on the ground, right? That's what my kids knew, that the fries were made for birds growing up, because that's what we would do. We would feed birds if we're sitting outside. Birds never have anxiety. Why? Because they know that somehow whatever food they're going to need is going to be there. So Jesus is using the example, verse 27 going on. He says, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour of, of, his, of span of life but I know that you and I can miss out on life because of our anxiety, but we can't add anything to our life. Verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon was the most wealthy man on the planet, and yet he didn't have all of what the lilies of the field have. Why? Because God 
clothed them. Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field in which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? What is Jesus saying? Now is Jesus not saying, oh, don't do anything, just, just sit there and it'll all just fall into your lap. What he's getting at is the anxiety that we carry all the time about, is it going to happen? Is there going to be enough? Am I going to be able to provide? And what happens is that we take that on ourselves, which is exactly what the devil is tempting Jesus to do. Don't, don't trust the Father. Trust yourself. He's not going to come through for you. You're going to have to make it happen for yourself. And when we start buying that lie, then we start making decisions that lead us down a road that we don't want to go down. Because ultimately, we are never self-made men. We are God-made men. And that is a whole different category. Because trusting God means God provides when we can't see a way for provision to come. God makes ends meet. And I'll tell you, in, in, in all, all of my time since that day on the plane until now, I've never, ever gone to a season, through a season of life. We've gone through lean times and wealthy times. But I've never missed a meal. I've never had clothes on my back um, that I haven't had on my back. My kids have always had what they need. My wife has always had what she needed. And that's because God has provided for us. And I can't take credit for that. I, it's not my great financial wisdom or my ability to make money. It's God's ability to always sustain us and provide for us. You know how freeing it is when you don't have to carry that? Another little insight. I don't know if Pastor Bernie ever go through this, but I have two layers of provision that concern me that I always constantly have to give back to God. One of them is my family. The other one's the church. And, and, and as a pastor, you can easily get sucked into, okay, you're, you're not only responsible for the spiritual reality of what's happening in people's lives, but you're running a small business, right? So you're in charge of a budget and finances and all those kind of things, and there's income and there's expenses, and there are times where I'm like, God, where's the money coming from? Because it doesn't look like we're going to have enough. And this is one of the things the Lord told me years ago because he knows I'm a very anxious person. He said, here's, here's my promise to you. He goes, any church that you pastor, I'll make it grow and I'll provide what it needs. You do the rest. And I remember every time I go, like, oh, Lord, you know, attendance is down. Giving's not what it's supposed to be. And God says, hey, hey, whoa, 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 wait. Remember, who, who takes care of those numbers? I'm like, oh, yeah, you do. He says, oh, yeah, just, just pastor people. And every church that I've been in, every time we've seen church, we've actually, my wife and I know how to do this. We know how to cause churches to decline, and then God knows how to make them grow back up. And he just done it every time. That's the Lord. And we've seen lean times, and we've seen times of abundance. But I've come to this conclusion. My wife knows the Lord said that to me. When she sees my anxiety, she says, oh, wait, 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 what did God say about the numbers? That's his, you just pastor people? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. You know how freeing that is? It's so freeing when you don't have to worry about the weight of provision, when you trust God with it. Jesus did that, because how many times have you made life decisions that don't turn out the right way because you were overwhelmed with trying to provide for yourself? Second thing, look at verses 5 through 7. Second temptation is self-promotion. Verse 5 goes on. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What is the temptation that's going on here? So this is the second time in the temptation that the devil says the same phrase. If you are the son of God. 
Does the devil know that Jesus is the Son of God? Absolutely he does. But he's thrown in that word if. Because what is he wanting to get Jesus to do? To question his identity. Because when you and I question our identity, we have to be about self-promotion. See, what was going on here is that what self-promotion really is, it's performing to prove identity or worth. And this is a huge temptation for us as men, that you are what you do. You are according to your latest performance or job review. And we put everything into that. We put our value into that. And so the devil comes and he hits Jesus right where all of the men, all we, we kind of hang out. And that is we, he's tempting him to do something that this is what's really interesting. Jesus says not, not to do this. What? Because if you do it, you're testing God. Now, why in the world would this be a test to God that if you're trying to perform to pr- prove yourself? Why is that testing God? Because it strikes to the core of your identity, and your identity is never based on performance. Anybody heard of that thing called grace? Grace is that there is no performance. The performance that had to be done was already done on our behalf by a man named Jesus. We don't have to perform for God. We don't have to be good enough for God. Jesus has taken care of that for us. But what, what we still feel like we have to do is we have to prove ourselves. We have to, we have to do that. So that means we promote ourselves what, by performing in such a way that I feel like I am legitimate. I feel like I'm valuable. I feel like I'm important. I feel like I have an identity. And we get caught up in that. And why is that so important to understand? Because when you and I do that, we're testing the very thing that God has already said is true of us. So here's really powerful, some powerful things. So Jesus, remember, fully God, fully man, okay? And in his humanity, look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. What does the Father say about his Son? This is at the baptism of Jesus. It says, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, I want you to capture something. In the life of Jesus on this planet, this comes at his baptism. Jesus hasn't done anything yet. Not one miracle that's recorded yet. Not one person's gotten saved. Not one sermon has been preached. Jesus hasn't done anything yet. He's just getting baptized, and the Father speaks from heaven and says what? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, how can he be well pleased? Because Jesus hasn't done anything yet. Because Jesus is son. And that's all that matters. And then if you go on into Jesus' ministry, and then you get to Matthew 17, verse 5, this is what we call the transfiguration. This is where Jesus gives, uh, gives Peter, James, and John a little peek on who he is. He reveals a bit of who he is, and it says this in that same context. They're up on a mountain, and they're getting a sneak peek of the nature of who Jesus is. It says this in verse 17, he was still speaking with them. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Same phrase again. So what's going on is when the devil comes and says to Jesus, hey, why don't you just do this? Why don't you just show how impressive you are? Why is that a test? Because Jesus would be testing the very thing that God the Father has said about him, which is true for us. If you're trying to constantly prove yourself every day to show that you're legitimate, valuable, and worthy, then you're testing the very thing that God has said about you. This is important. The Bible tells us that we are adopted into God's family. And in both the Gospel of John and the Epistle of John, 1 John, the phrase is used, you are a child of God. And when you try to prove yourself more than that or earn that title, you're actually testing God. Why? Because God said, I already said it. It's already determined. And it's not based on your performance. 
But boy, as men, we take that on, and it is crushing when our value is tied to our performance because I haven't found a human being yet that hasn't failed. And if your identity and values tied to your performance, when you fail, your world falls apart. And the enemy comes to constantly tempt us. Tempt us. Now, competition's not bad, but competition to earn value is always the wrong motive. It's the wrong motive. Because then your, your identity is tied into a good, how good you are in a certain field or a certain ability or a certain talent. And there's always going to be somebody better. If you know who you are, then you won't give in to that temptation. Now, this is, this is a struggle for, for pastors, too. And I had to learn this as a young pastor that, that you, you realize that you're, there's a lot of sometimes there's pride and arrogance that comes into even church planting. And when I know I was church planting, that was part of the struggle for me is that I'll be honest, when we, when we planted a church in Ventura, my, my, my understanding at first, because I was a young, arrogant, ungrounded not a very good, healthy leader. My focus of church planting, I'll be honest with you, was not to go reach people who are lost. It was to prove to myself and to everybody else I could be the best pastor there is. Wrong motive. <laughs> and the Lord used that church plant to kind of humble me. But I remember one of the things that, that constantly bothered me and it constantly was a part of my life was that I could not be in a room full of pastors and be secure in myself. It was the most uncomfortable, unsecure, insecure place to be for me. Because I would walk in the room and I would size everybody up. I would wonder how big their church is. I would wonder how influential their ministry is, what city they were in. I'd ask all these questions to myself. Now, I know you guys, whatever field you're in, you never do that, right? We all do it. In fact, there's a, there's a, anybody excited about the fact that the next Top Gun movie is coming out, Maverick? If you don't know it's coming out, I can't wait. I'll be there the first day it opens. Top, came, Top Gun came out when I was in high school, so I know it's a classic now, which makes me feel really old. There's a scene in the movie, I don't know if I shared this with you guys uh, last time I was here, but this scene in the movie that from Top Gun unfolded so many times in my life. It's a scene when Maverick and Goose are in their first briefing, they get to the Top Gun school and their commanding officer is giving them a briefing, and Maverick's sitting there next to Goose, Maverick obviously, you know, is Tom Cruise, and so he, he's not really paying attention to Viper who's, who's talking, and he's just distracted, and he's looking around, and, and Goose can pick up that he's being dist he's distracted, and he's not focusing on what Viper's saying, and so finally Goose says, what are you doing, man? And Maverick turns to him around, and he's just looking around, and he goes, I'm just looking around to see who's the best. And I thought, that's exactly what I do every time in a room full of pastors. I'm always sizing them up. And I guess what happens every time I do that, I always find somebody better than me. And I would leave pastor's conferences so depressed. My wife didn't even want me to go to a pastor's conference. She goes, you're going to come back depressed. Why? Because you're going to compare yourself to everybody else in the room, and there's always going to be somebody better. It took me four years in that church plant to realize that my primary identity was not pastor. It was not father. My primary identity, or even husband, it was I'm a child of God. And that doesn't change depending on how good or bad the church is or how good my message was or how great a leader I am. That doesn't change. Why? Because if I'm doing all those things to try to earn that, then I'm testing God and what he's already said is true about my life. God's grace accepts us not based on our ability or our performance, but on God's choice of love for us. And Jesus got that one. And sometimes we miss that. And that temptation comes to all of us. And so these are the core temptations that we're, we take on the weight of provision in our life, and then we take on what? Self-promotion. I've got to make something of myself so I feel valuable. What would it be like if you could wake up in the morning and without even doing one thing that day, you could have a sense of value in your life every single day? 
That's how God's created us to live. That's what Jesus' death on the cross purchased. what? It adopts us into God's family, even though we're broken and flawed and sinners, and forgives our sins so that every single day, God has already said, this is what's true of your life. This is who you are, and you don't have to test that out to prove it. And then there's a third temptation, number three, and that's the temptation of self-interest. So verse 8 through 11 goes on. It says, and again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So what's the temptation that the devil's tempting Jesus to? He's tempting Jesus to obviously be self-focused and self-interest by looking at every opportunity, including worship, as a means to his own end. See, self-interest isn't just selfishness. It's this insidious part of our human nature that looks at every opportunity and every person as ultimately a means to our own end. And that's exactly what the devil was, was telling Jesus. If you'll just worship me, you'll have all this. If you use me as a means to your end, then you'll have everything. And that's why Jesus says, no, no, no. When you worship the Father, you're just worshiping the Father, not as, as a means to an end, but sometimes even that, we will be guilty of using God as a means to an end instead of God being the end. And so that, that's something that we have to see in our lives is that there's this self-interest that kind of begins to embed itself into us and that means every opportunity, every circumstance, and every human being becomes a means to our end. And even though we might become very, very proficient at making it look like we're generous and we're kind and we're loving and we're not really manipulative, ultimately we know deep down inside if every opportunity that we have is a way to position ourselves or to use the situation for our benefit. That's self-interest. So I want you just to think about this for our lives. Is that something that you see in your life? Is that something that even, even with God, that if, if God were to give you everything that you've ever wanted, would you really even need God anymore? Because he's simply become a means to your end. Now I want us to, to put this in the context of Jesus. Because think, I want you to think about this. Jesus is fully God and he's fully man, so he understands what it means to be human. But if you, you fast forward in Jesus' journey of his ministry, he gets to the end of his ministry, he's just about, he's about to be He's about to be arrested and go on trial and go to the cross. And there's this moment of humanity, of, of raw honesty that Jesus has with his father. In, in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying to the point, his prayers are so intense, it's like he's bleeding through his pores. And he says this to, to the father, he says, Father, knowing what was coming next, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. Yours be done. So Jesus is saying, I know I'm going to go to the cross. That's why I came. But he's also human. He knows the suffering he's going to go through. So he's saying to the Father, is there any other way to accomplish what we need to accomplish for humanity? Is there any other like option B that we could take? Because he knows you was going to go through. And that's where he comes to this realization. It's not about me. It's about the purpose the Father had that brought me into the world in the first place. It's this ultimate moment because this is where the cross becomes the reality because Jesus ultimately, what? He submits himself to the Father instead of his self-interest. He has, what? His Father's interest in mind. That's, that's the, the core of the cross, and that's the decision you and I have to make all the time. 
Is this reality? Is this going to be ultimately about me, or is this going to be about what God wants and about the people around me? I think this is really interesting. When I have, you know, we talk, I talk to couples about marriage, and you know, you, the the wife's supposed to submit, and and that always becomes a big sticking point. Like, what do you mean submit? I have to do everything my husband tells me. But here's the issue: I'll tell you, women have it easy. Wives have it easy. You know why? What's the biblical mandate for husbands? To what? Love their wife as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up. Died. No self-interest. <laughs> That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to lay down ourselves for our wives. And I'm, I would say even beyond that, as men, we're supposed to lay down our lives for others. We're not supposed to be about self-interest. So Jesus got that. And you and I are, are confronted with that kind of scenario in big ways and small ways every day of our lives. Is this going to be about me or is this going to be about what God's doing in this moment and what he's doing in the lives of other people? So I don't want to give it away, but I mean, it's, it's an actual historical story, so I'm not really giving anything away. Anybody seen the movie 1917? Okay. Uh, I don't usually recommend like tons of movies, but uh, that movie is worth seeing. For a number of reasons. One of the reasons is if you're into cinema photography, it's, it's done in a thing called one shot. And literally, there's no edits in, and there's actually, as you watch the movie, it's, it's a two-hour movie, you'll have a difficult time figuring out where they edited anywhere in the film. Because the cameras follow the actors, literally. It's, it's amazing to watch. But the power of that story is it's just a true story coming out of World War I, where two British soldiers were asked to do something that's absolutely impossible. They were actually asked to get to the front lines before there was an assault by the British army on the Germans that was supposed to supposedly bring big victory, but it was a setup by the Germans that were baiting them into this battle where they were going to get annihilated, but they didn't know it. So they asked Lance Corporal Blake and Schofield, this is what they said, you need to get this message in the next day and a half to the front lines to tell them to call off the attack because it's a trap. And they had to make a decision. Are we going to do this? Because they told them there's a pretty good chance you're not going to survive, but this is the only shot we have. And if you, watch, if you see the movie, they said, of course. So, so they're into it, and then they start questioning how are they doing this and what's going to happen. And it, there's different points along the way they're asking the question, should we really be doing this? Should we be doing this? Because they know what's at stake. They know that their lives are on the line. But every moment, the tension they have is, is this going to be about me or is this going to be about 1,600 men who are on the front lines that if I don't get there, they're all going to die? They had to make a decision. Now, you may not have the lives of 1,600 men in your hands. You may, I don't know, a number of you are in the military. But you have a decision to make. Is it about what I want or is it about what God is doing? Is it what other people need? And aren't you glad that Jesus made a decision 2,000 years ago that it, it wasn't based on his self-interest? It was based on what? On what we needed. That's why we're here today. And that's ultimately how you and I face the temptations in our life. And here we'll go back to the beginning, and I'll kind of, and this is what I, I'll do. It's just a quick moment of, of self-assessment for each one of us, because I know these, these are triggers in my life. So how do you know if you're self-providing, if you're seeking to self-provide, if you're stressed out about money and provision and resources all the time? You're always seeking to self-provide. That's a trigger. That's an automatic thing you know. Okay, you've taken on something that God calls you to trust him for, and Jesus was able to trust God for everything. Second thing is, how do I know if I'm self-promoting? 
if you feel a constant need to perform better so that people will accept you. That's a big one. You feel that. But here's the reality for each of that, is that God provides so you don't, we don't have to. God accepts on your worst day, in your worst performance. God still accepts you. And the third thing, am I being self-interested in, in, my, in my own needs? And that is, ultimately, I think this is what happens. If we are driven by self-interest, it doesn't just stop with people and circumstances. Ultimately, God becomes a means to our end. You can see it in the way that you pray. When we constantly pray for God to give us all the things, we have the checklist of what we got. And it might be very good things. It might be health, and it might be healing. It might be all those kinds of things. But if our prayer with God is simply a checklist of what he owes us or what we expect from him, then he's simply become a means to an end. He shifted from being God to being a genie that just gives us our wishes. But then we come back to the prayer that Jesus said, not, not what I want, not what my will is, because yours is always better, but I submit myself to that. So let me just pick up again from what I started with, the story that I began with, and we're going to move towards, a, I'm going to pray here in a little bit, but we have some time for you guys to break up into groups and, and have some discussion together. Um, but let me revisit the story. So my wife leaves church that morning to go and save our worship leader's life because his wife was going to kill him. She was. And so she arrives at the house, and it's a really tough scene because they've got three kids, and they're just torn up because of what's going on. Mom is, is literally punching dad, and my wife gets in there to referee and breaks them apart. And so, so finally, we, she gets everything calm, and that afternoon, we, we kind of assess what's going on, and we sit down with the two of them, and he just starts to unpack his journey and what he's gone through. And, and that was only the tip of the iceberg because two days later, we had them together again, and we're talking, and I said, okay, full disclosure, what have you done? And he just starts unpacking for an hour his life for the last 10 years. That, that was one of the toughest moments, watching his, his wife just be destroyed by his sin, because he had to get it out. And so we went on, and finally he said, okay, so I said, here's your pathway forward. So we got into, into to, went through a ministry called Pure Desire, and he and his wife went through intensive counseling. He went through intensive personal counseling. He got into a pure desire group of accountability with a bunch of guys, and he started doing that. So one year went by, and there were a couple times during that year she came to us and she said, I don't know about this. We're like, just stay the course. Just give him the first year and see what happens. And like three or four times she's like, I think I'm done. He relapsed again. He blew it again. I don't think he's going to get free from this thing in his life, and I don't want to subject myself to any more pain. We're like, just stay the course. Just stay. Then year two. A little bit better. Not perfect, a little bit better. She's like, I I think I might stick around. We're like, well, that's good. We want you to stick around. And then year three, they started actually actually having a marriage that they never had before. And then after year three, watching their family change and their kids grow and their marriage develop, amazing thing after into the after just after the third year he's he's been in counseling they went through a year-long intensive counseling he's been in now in a group every single week he meets with about six guys and if he's not meeting with six guys and they can't make it he's on the phone with them they're calling each other supporting each other he's growing and and this was for me this is the beauty of a man who learned how to navigate temptation in his life and by the way he did not do it on his own he did it with a group of people was the day that he led worship in our church again which is about 18 months ago where he got up on a Sunday morning in front of a church where he had failed miserably and led worship in tears as the church applauded God's redemptive work in his life. 
That's the way God works. And how, what was the shift in his life? Is he still tempted? Yes, he'll come to me and he'll say, Pastor, I'm just getting bombarded. I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting flashbacks from my past. I, you know, he said, I drive through a certain area and I know what happened there and it's like these triggers. And I said, okay, well, have you called your guys? And then I will pray with him. And he'll get into scripture. And he'll get back on top of it again. But it doesn't mean he's not tempted. He just knows how to handle temptation. And one of the areas he knows about that is that, in fact, as he's re-engaged with worship, he, he's done it in a different way because he used to lead worship to prove his value and his worth. He doesn't do that anymore because he knows who he is in Jesus. And when somebody leads the congregation in worship and it's not about them, it's really good because he's not trying to prove himself. He's just getting people to Jesus. And I share that because I don't know what your story is. It may not be sexual addiction, but it may be other things where you're tempted if we get to the core and realize God provides for us, ultimately we don't have to do that. God accepts us unconditionally. I don't have to perform for it. And ultimately, it's never going to be about my interest because what is most fulfilling in my life is usually not what is most interesting to me. You know what's interesting? If you read through Jesus' journey and if you get to the book of Philippians, there's a verse that there's a passage that we quote a lot. Because after Jesus' death and his resurrection and ascension back to the Father, it says that someday in the, in the book of Philippians, talking about Jesus' journey, journey to become a suf suffering servant in the world, and then eventually it says what? One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Remember what, the, what Satan offered Jesus back in Matthew 4? Jesus said, not that way. Not that way. Not through my self-interest. And so what does Jesus end up getting that the enemy was offering him? All the kingdoms of the world. Why? Because he didn't do it in a self-serving, self-interested way. He submitted to the Father and let God take care of all those things. And so my encouragement to you today is that there is a way. There is a way to face temptation and find victory in it. But I want you to, what we're going to do in the next few moments, I'm going to pray because I want to pray specifically for you, but then we're going to break into groups. Uh, and let me just read the questions because Pastor Bernie said this earlier. You guys have men's groups. You have guys getting together for if it's, if it's a sermon-based group or if you're dealing with issues of sexual addiction, you cannot be the person and the man God's called you to be in isolation. You just can't do it. It's never been done before, and Jesus didn't even do it. And I don't think any of us have a, a, kind of have a leg up on Jesus, right? We all need each other, but this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'll pray in a moment, but here's the questions you're going to ask each other in, in the next few moments. Which of the three temptations has sidelined you? Just groups of two or three, maybe four. Second question, how do you plan to navigate the temptation in the future? And then the third thing, pray together for God's spirit to give you the strength to follow the example of Jesus in navigating temptation. So you see that, and then 1 Corinthians chapter, 13, chapter 10, verse 13, remind, remind you this, there is always a way of escape. You can never hit a dead end with the temptation that God doesn't open a door for you. You just have to be willing to walk through it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I ask for, for each man that's here this morning Lord, I don't, I don't want to pretend for a moment to understand the unique temptations that each would experience, but I know, Lord, the answer is the same. We have to turn to you. And we have to trust in you, Lord, for the things that we take on ourselves as men that, that lead us down a road that leads us away from you and disengages from your purpose. So, Lord, today, whatever it might be, I pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to bring what is in darkness into light. That, Lord, if there are things that maybe we haven't shared, I pray, Lord, that we would be willing to get those out so that we can 
not only identify the temptations that we have, but Lord, we can realize that there is support and there is help and there is encouragement around us. But Lord, I do ask, one of the things, Lord, I know that is true, if we have failed and we have given in temptation, Lord, I know how the enemy can create bondages in our life, things that hold us back, things that become addictions or things that control us. So Lord, I pray right now that if, if temptation has reached that level, I pray that Jesus, by your power that you displayed in your death and resurrection, that you would set men free this morning. That Lord, where the enemy has gotten a hold in their life, Lord, because of the cross, because of your forgiveness, because you took our sin on yourself, that that thing is broken free in their life today. And Lord, then what follows is simply, Lord, the life that you have for them living out each day a healthy life that deals with temptation but finds ways to find the way of escape so that we can be the men that you've called us to be. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So if you would go ahead and, and find a handful of guys around you. Is that right, Pastor Bernie? If they just take a few minutes to, to go through those questions and, uh, and then pray with each other and then uh, we'll come back together after you're done. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.